Uh, we are continuing our march through the Gospel of Luke. I'm glad to be with you. If, you, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Logan, uh, another pastor, a few uh, neighborhoods over. Uh, happy to be with you guys as you search for another pastor here. Uh, but we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, and I was reminded this week of the first time that I ever took a personality test. Anybody here like really into personality tests? So I remember I, I took the, my first personality test when I was in college, and this was before they got fit, like really big and everyone was doing them. And I remember them saying like, hey, we're going on this trip, I want you to take this test. And I remember thinking like, this is kind of silly. Like, I don't understand this. Why are we doing this? This seems like a big waste of time to me, honestly. Uh, then I got my results. And I kind of, again, just like bucked up against them. I was like, you know what? I just don't like being put in a box. And I articulated that to the lady who was facilitating the test and she chuckled and she's like, <laughs> And she kept reading my description, which said, people with this personality do not like to be put in boxes and will likely not like this personality test. And I was like, ah, like get out of my head. We don't like being put in boxes, right? Personality tests, that's whatever, that's, those are great. But in general, some of the worst conversations we have are with people who are trying to pin us. People who are trying to put us in a box, people who are giving us false dichotomies and saying, okay, here's, there's two choices. Which one are you? And we're like, wait a minute. These are not my categories. Aren't there more choices available? And the reason I bring this up is because that is what we often do with Jesus. Jesus, whose team are you on? Jesus, are you a Republican or Democrat? Progressive or conservative? Jesus, would you have joined this type of church or that type of church? Do you prefer to worship this way or that way? Jesus, are you for this cause or that cause? We all try to recruit Jesus to our team. Put Jesus in a box. Give Jesus our parameters and try to make him fit within them. But we're not alone in this. In fact, during Jesus' time on earth, this was part of his tension with the religious leaders of his day. All of them, with slightly different convictions, tried to get Jesus on their team. Jesus, will you please fit into my box? Because if you're on my team, if you can fit into my box, then you're good. But if you don't, then Jesus, we got a problem. And this might surprise some of you if you're new to church, like some of you might be here checking this whole thing out. Maybe you haven't been in church a long time. I remember this really confused me when I first started reading the Bible. It's like, wait a minute. Why is Jesus always at conflict with the religious guys, right? He seems to be good friends with the people who are far from God, yet he seems to be getting into conflict with the religious guys. It is part of the irony that we see in the Gospels. Those who should have recognized Jesus, should have obeyed Jesus, should have followed Jesus, didn't. Why? Jesus failed to fit into their box. So this morning, we are going... What time is it again? This afternoon, I'm used to preaching in the morning. This afternoon, we are going to read three scenes from Jesus's life. 
And we're going to see how Jesus responds to these religious leaders. And we're going to see the invitation that he offered them and the invitation that he still offers us today. You with me this afternoon? Great. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. And they, the religious leaders, said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. That's scene one. Here is scene two. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain field, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. He said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's scene two. Here's scene three. Verse six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus, in all three of these scenes, is emphatically saying, I am bringing something new. Jesus rejects the false dichotomies of religion. Jesus, this one or this one? He's like, no, thank you. He will not let people put him into a religious box. He did not come to reform religion. He came to replace it, to replace it with himself. In Christ, the old religious system was going away and Jesus was bringing about a new way. And in this passage, we see a glimpse of that new way that was available to them and is still available to us. We're gonna see a new joy in God, a new approach to change, and a new rest in Jesus. A new joy in God. In the first uh, scene that we looked at, we have the Pharisees, and they are really upset because Jesus' disciples were not fasting and praying like they were doing. And you can hear the passive-aggressive tone in their comment, can't you? So um, as you know, 
we are the Pharisees and we're basically professionals at praying and fasting. And even John, like that weird guy, John, with those ragtag disciples, those guys even fast and pray. But Jesus, your disciples, I'm not sure what they're doing. (laughs) They're not fasting. They're not praying. They actually look more like the partying type. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? (laughs) This is hilarious. Jesus is saying basically this. Imagine the most boring wedding reception you've ever been to. You guys have probably been to some bad ones, right? It needs to be admitted. Some of them are better than others. Imagine the worst one you've ever gone to. Get that image in your head. I I think about how funny this scene is. I mean, imagine you finish a wedding. Uh, People are hungry, right? We've been sitting through the ceremony. We're ready to eat. You show up at the reception hall. The DJ gets on the mic and he's like, before we announce the bride and groom this evening, we are so pumped to let you know a special announcement. We are all fasting. You'd be like, what? (laughs) No, that would be ridiculous, right? Because a wedding is a time to celebrate. It's a time for joy, time for laughter, Time for dancing. It's a moment to be glad. And Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and said, basically saying like, your religion is like fasting at a wedding. No wonder you're all miserable. Right? You've, th- you've taken my good gifts and you've thrown a wet blanket on them. Even in Jesus' day, a wedding would have lasted seven days. Seven days of dancing and music and food and drink and people would be celebrating. Jesus is saying, I am the groom. It's an image we see often in scripture. Jesus is the groom and he's saying, I have come for my bride, which, are, which is us, God's people. The time for feasting has come. God has come to the earth to bring redemption and restoration and salvation. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking out on earth. And yes, one day my people are going to fast. Right? It's like nothing wrong with fasting. I'm not against fasting. Fasting's great. But at this moment, salvation has come. Can we celebrate the good news of Jesus? And you see the Pharisees, they're trying to pin Jesus. So Jesus, which is it? You one of these fasting guys? Are you a feasting guy? Are you one of these guys who's serious about prayer and holiness? Or are you one of these guys, as it seems, who are into feasting and hanging out with questionable people? And Jesus is making an interesting point to the Pharisees. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not saying yes to either of those. I'm bringing about a whole new system. Your old system did not work. Your system is like fasting at a wedding. And I have come to bring you joy. Everlasting joy. Deep, meaningful, purposeful joy. 
Why? Because I've come to reconnect you to the source of joy, God. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna eat and we're gonna celebrate because in those celebrations, it's like a sign pointing to the God of all joy. And when we feast and when we celebrate, we are reenacting or we are looking forward to the moment when we feast in the kingdom of God. So yes, we are gonna feast, but yeah, we're also gonna fast. And when we fast and we go without, when we don't have everything that we want, right? When we want it or we don't have everything we think we need at this moment, we are reminding ourselves that all we actually need is God. You could have the world give me Jesus. I don't need all the flash. I don't need all the stuff. All I need is God. So whether I have or whether I don't have at the moment, actually my true joy is not in having or not having. My true joy is in God. I love the way Jonathan Edwards says it. God is the highest good of reasonable creatures. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So Jesus is like, yes to holiness, fasting, and prayer. But not like the Pharisees do it, full of self-righteousness and showmanship. And yes to feasting and celebration and joy, but not like the world does it, full of overindulgence and greed, looking for the next experience that will satisfy. Yes to the joyful wonder of following Jesus. I've come to bring you new joy, a joy that religion could never touch. He goes on and he gives a new approach to change. As Jesus is addressing these questions about fasting, he actually gives two metaphors. And these are also very interesting and I think pretty funny. Uh, the first, uh, excuse me, both of these metaphors show us two wrong ways to change. If you think about religion and you think about Christ, what Christ came to do, both are, are aiming at change, right? The religion is trying to change you by external rules. Jesus is trying to bring about something slightly different, which we'll get to, a change of the heart. But Jesus is giving us some examples of the way that we do this wrong. The first example he gives is the foolish fashion approach. Foolish fashion approach. Verse 36, he talks about basically taking a new garment and trying to attach it to an old garment. I have uh, four kids and three boys. And so it is a, a very common sight for me to see one of my three sons coming up to me with holes in everything they're wearing. <laughs> holes in the knees, holes in the shirt, holes in the shoe. So imagine one of them comes to me and they've got holes all over their shirt and I Say, okay, son, it's, it's, this is enough. And we go buy a new shirt. We go to the store, brand new shirt. And we come home and I just start cutting up the new shirt. I cut up the new shirt and I start trying to patch the new shirt to the old holy shirt. That would make no sense, right? No, you have to take off the old shirt and you got to put on the new shirt. 
What Jesus is saying is that you cannot take bits and pieces of him or his message and try to stitch it onto your old ideas or your old way of living, which is what many of us try to do when we approach change in a religious way, right? We're like, okay, I've come into church. I know I need God. I need Jesus. I need something. I don't know. So give me a little bit of Jesus. I don't need, like, this a bit. Like, this piece I like, that piece I like, this little bit I'll take, and I'm just going to take those ideas, and I'm going to stitch them onto the, the life I'm already living. Some of us have tried that, and we know it does not work, right? It, those, those two things will rip apart in a heartbeat. Jesus is a terrible hobby, right? The idea to say, I just want to add Jesus as an accessory to my already the life that I'm already living. Like, Jesus is Lord of the universe. He will not be your accessory. It'll never work. That's the foolish fashion approach. He tells another approach, the wasted wine approach. We see this in verse 37 and 38. Basically, he's making the point, if you have new wine, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. And in those days, uh, wine containers, you didn't have like the bottles like we have today. They, put, they went into goat or sheepskin. And if you had new wine, which was still expanding and fermenting, and you put the new wine in an old brittle goat skin, what would happen, the wine would expand, the skin would crack, and the wine would be wasted. If you have new wine, Jesus is saying you got to have a new wine skin, a new wine container. So if the first approach is this idea of taking a a bit of Jesus and trying to stitch him onto your life, the second approach is saying, okay, no, 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 I am all in. So I'm going to take my life, I'm going to take all of Jesus, and I'm just going to mix them together. This is often called syncretism. In our culture, we see this all the time. We buy hook, line, and sinker into one of our culture's narratives, and we say, what's wrong with that? I'm going all in with that. I'm going all in with Jesus. We're just going to mix them together. Materialism, the world says. Hey, you need a lot of stuff to be happy. We're like, okay, that sounds all right. (laughs) Stuff and Jesus. We're just going to mix that together. Or individualism. It's like, hey, you do you. I'm going to do me and I'm going to, Jesus, we're just going to mix all this together. Nationalism, we do that with. It's like, oh, let's just take nationalism and Jesus and mix them together. What do we get? Something that doesn't look like Jesus. Right? We cannot take these ideas of the world, these old ideas, these old systems, and expect the new wine to fit into them. You gotta put the new wine in there and it's gonna explode everything to to pieces. So what's the solution? Jesus gives us a whole new approach to change. The foolish fashion where you're just gonna take bits of Jesus, never work. If you're trying to mix Jesus in with your old ideas, never work. Jesus is saying you have to put on a whole new garment. Take the whole garment of Christ, put it on. You're gonna need new wine and a new wine skin. What does this mean? The way religion changes us is external. 
It is behavior modification. And I would imagine that all of us have lived it at some point. Right, you're like, I've got to get my act together. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to follow all the rules. Jesus, I promise I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to be that guy volunteering, showing up at church, praying in the mornings, reading my Bible. I am that guy, Jesus. And we focus on all the externals and maybe we do good for a month, two months. Maybe we make it a couple years and then we typically flame out. That is external religious change. But the way Jesus is bringing change is fundamentally different. It is internal. Changing behavior only comes from changing the heart. And an illustration you've probably heard before is that religious change is like trying to take a metal bar and bend it. So if you apply enough force to a metal bar for long enough, you like bend it as hard as you can. You're applying the force. I'm doing it this time, Jesus. Look how hard I'm trying. Look at what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden you let up and boom, the bar flings back up right into the shape it, you left it in, right? Or it started in. But what happens when you heat the bar up? Like something happens internally to the metal. It changes it. So actually when you heat the bar up, you can mold it and bend it any way that you want to. Religious change is like us trying to bend the metal bar and we know we won't get very far and it's gonna go right back when we let go. Jesus's change is actually heating up our hearts in such a way that changes our nature so that we are moldable to his will, changes us from the inside out. So first, we have to receive the new wine. His grace. This was radical for Jesus. Receiving his grace, receiving his spirit. He changes our hearts. And when he changes our hearts, when we trust in Christ, actually what happens is our loves are reordered. Right? We're, we're probably um, loving some similar things, our family, our job, our house, or you know, all the stuff that we love, but all of a sudden they're getting reordered and Jesus is on top. We have new priorities, new worship. Now our insides begin to change. We love things that we didn't love before. And then all of a sudden we notice our lifestyle is beginning to change. We're making different decisions. As we follow Jesus, we have a new approach to our relationships, to our schedule. We're doing different things. A new approach to dealing with anxiety and fear. A new approach to our relationships. A new approach to money and power. And they don't actually feel like rules anymore. It's a delight to follow Jesus. Why? Our internal nature has been changed by him. The new wine is good. It is God's grace. It's the best. There's nothing better. But if you try to take his grace and his spirit, the new wine, and try to throw it into your old wine skin, it's going to burst apart. For us to drink deeply of the new wine, we must have new wine skins. Finally, we see we get a new rest in Jesus. And I think these are, the, these are my favorite of the scenes. Luke quickly moves to two different moments that have to do with the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a very big deal to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So if Jesus is going to start messing with the Sabbath, he's going to have it coming. And the first scene is in a grain field. 
Jesus is walking with his disciples and apparently the religious leaders are watching them. And the disciples start picking heads of grain, like putting them in their finger and uh, putting them in their fingers and moving them around and then eating some of the grain. And the Pharisees like blow the, the religious whistle, like Whoa, throw the flag, you're breaking the Sabbath. And for us reading this, you know, thousands of years later, we're like, what is the big deal? Well, it was a big deal to them. The Sabbath was the holy day of rest. In those days, the Jewish tradition had so many rules about the Sabbath. The Mishnah, for example, they had 39 prohibited activities on the Sabbath. They were very particular, very strict, and the Pharisees took them very seriously. So according to the Jewish traditions, the disciples were guilty of reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food. They were working on the Sabbath, and the religious leader says, no, you're breaking the law. And Jesus, after explaining an Old Testament text to them, says this, and it sounds, it doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but it would have been huge to them. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what is he saying? He's, he is framing the discussion in a different way. The real issue, he says, is his authority. Who is really in charge? Are the traditions, your man-made traditions, in charge, or is God? I'm telling you, I am Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus said. Meaning, your traditions, fine, but something bigger, something better, something greater than your tradition has come. And I'm standing right in front of you, Jesus says. So on the surface, there's this conflict about the finer details of the Jewish law. But underneath the surface, we, surface, we realize Jesus is making these bold claims about who he is, his identity. And then the scene shifts once again, and we're on another Sabbath day, and we're in the synagogue. And here, I mean, tensions are high. You have the Pharisees and the scribes, and you have Jesus, and right in the middle of them, you have a man who is suffering. I mean, can you imagine this scene? A man, it says, with a withered right hand. And the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, because if Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they were going to throw the flag again. They were going to blow the whistle and be like, you are out of bounds, Jesus. And Jesus looks at them. He, it says he knows their thoughts. They're not even saying anything. He just knows. And he tells them, verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful in the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Hmm. And then, right, doesn't leave room for a response. This is a rhetorical question. Right then and there, he heals the man. Knowing how irate the religious leaders, the people with power were gonna be really angry, but Jesus' compassion is so great. He's like, I'm not missing this opportunity to heal this man. The religious leaders are angry at Jesus. Jesus is angry at the religious leaders. Why? Because the religious 
people were missing the point of the Sabbath and they were missing the point of the law. And let's just be honest, religious people, we still do that sometimes. We miss the point. The Sabbath was meant to be rest for the weary. They had made it a burden. It was about restoring what had been diminished, replenishment for the drained, repairing what was broken. And they had missed all of that. They'd made it a spectacle. So for Jesus to heal this man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath was not breaking the Sabbath law. In fact, Jesus is claiming it was fulfilling the Sabbath's intention. Wasn't this whole thing about restoration of what was broken? How have you missed that? You got all these laws, 39 laws, but we can and cannot do on the Sabbath, but the big thing that we're here to do, you've missed it. We're gonna see this played out again and again in the gospels with the religious leaders, this back and forth with Jesus is gonna last all the way to Jesus's death. But it's as if Jesus is standing there and he sees the man with the shriveled hand and he sees all these religious leaders and he's like, you know, the issue is actually not this man's hand. The issue is your shriveled hearts. so full of self-righteousness, pettiness, bitterness, insecurity. You're so blind to what God is actually doing in the world. Religion has taken hold of your heart and is strangling you to death. You are shriveling on the inside. The Pharisees kept all the religious requirements but they missed the point. Their hearts were burdened with anxiety. They were weary from their religion. And in fact, the question underneath all of this conflict about the Sabbath is where does rest actually come from? What can give peace to my restless heart? Let's say we give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt. And they're like, man, they had great intentions. You know, they, it was God's command, the Sabbath, is the Ten Commandments, good stuff, great, like, rest, I'm all for it, I'm for the Sabbath, wonderful. But if it's not the day, Jesus, how do I quiet the restlessness of my soul? And I think this is a question all of us can relate to. You've been there, haven't you? I know I have. This sense of like, I've tried all the stuff and it's not working. I tried the job for a little while. Maybe I thought that would feel like solve the restlessness of my heart. I tried relationships. I've done family. I've done money. I've done all the things. But everything I try has left me short. And, it, and it's not satisfying. It's not quieting the restlessness of my heart. Augustine, the great theologian very famously said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. Our souls are just restless. Nothing is going to fill the void. Moving to another city, taking another job, moving to a different apartment, starting a different relationship, 
taking this hobby, that hobby. It's all, man, it quiets the voice for a moment. And I get it, and all of a sudden I want something else, and I get that, and I want something else, and all of a sudden I'm going around crazy trying to silence my restless heart. But this is why it's so profound what Jesus says. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath Lord. The rest for weary souls is not a day of the week. It is a person. The rest for weary souls is Christ himself. The peace for anxious hearts is Christ. The comfort for the fearful is Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we can search all day long, but ultimately our souls will not be at rest until they find their rest in him. Remember what Jesus said. You guys say it here often. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Just let that sink in for a moment. Come to me, all the qualified and gifted and people have their life together with a great 401ks and are able to serve the church and are, you know, up and to the right. All you people come to me. We're going to have a great team. Mm-mm. Come to me, all you who are stressed out and burnt out, weary, exhausted, and broken, and guess what? I will be your rest. I will give you rest. You will find rest in me. And that is an invitation that we need so badly because we're exhausted. So he says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. And then he lives his life and he ends up, we all know the end of the story, Jesus on a Roman cross. And what does he say? It is finished. And it's like this theme is being played out. It is finished. The work of salvation is done. There's nothing left for you to add. No amount of religion is going to get you there. I have paid the price. It is done. Joy and peace and a deep soul rest is now available for you in Jesus, not because you are so qualified and amazing and wonderful, but because he is, because what he has done for us on the cross, it is finished. Nothing gives the soul rest than to hear the creator of the universe tell you it is finished. There's nothing left for you to add to this. I'm not saying we don't work. I'm not saying we don't try hard. I'm not saying we don't pray. We don't do spiritual disciplines. Of course we do. Those are, Jesus is not against work. He's against earning. <laughs> you don't earn your salvation. You rest your way to salvation because the work is finished. So in place of religion, Jesus says, I'm giving you myself. And in me, you will have joy, you will have change that is deep and lasting, and you will have rest at a soul level. That was radical in Jesus's day. That is radical in our day. And we tend to forget 
the atmosphere of the first century church. I, want, I just want us to remember that, yes, we live in a very pluralistic city. So did the church in the first century. They lived in a very pluralistic society where there's all sorts of gods and goddesses and religions that you could follow. All of them were great. The Romans were like, go for it. <laughs> whatever one you want to worship, wonderful, as long as you submit to Rome. Right? Rome is first, and then do whatever you want to do. So I, I was reading a, a famous British pastor by the name of Dick Lucas, and he played out this dialogue. He's like, imagine a first century Christian talking to their Roman neighbor. It might go something like this. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great. Religion's a good thing. Where's your temple or holy place? Well, we don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? Where do your priests work and do their ritual? Well, we don't have priests that mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer sacrifices to acquire the favor of God? Well, we don't technically need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. See, Jesus came to replace the old system of earning with a new system of grace. And it's totally different. And I realized this afternoon as I'm speaking that most of you are not struggling trying to be, do what the Pharisees did, right? Most of you are not like, there's 39 rules for the Sabbath and you've, I think I might've broken three of them and I'm all mad because I got 39 rules. I know that's not where we're at this afternoon. But just because we're not doing what the Pharisees did doesn't mean we don't have a Pharisee heart. And this is where ch good church people like us sometimes make mistakes. We can very easily slide from grace, Jesus paid it all, to a Pharisee heart saying, I think I might need to do more and be better if God is ever going to approve of me. If I, and I actually need some stuff from God right now. I need some extra blessing. So I'm gonna be extra good right now that's what the Pharisees did. God, you owe me. Look at all the rules I'm following. And all of a sudden we move from grace in our hearts to these Pharisees' hearts and we lose the gospel. Remember in the book of Galatians, that's what uh, Paul had such an issue with the church. He's like, yeah, you're adding all these rules and regulations to Christ and when you've done that, you've missed the whole thing which leads us to the very final verse of this passage. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And of course, this is foreshadowing what is to come. In Jesus' very short life, the religious leaders would finally come to the realization that Jesus would not fit into their box. And so they crucified him. They gathered with the Roman authorities, they colluded, and they put Jesus on a Roman cross. Jesus was too much of a threat to their status quo. But ultimately, 
everything they were looking for, everything they were looking for would come through Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything that we're looking for, the ultimate joy, the ability to really change our lives, the ability to have a deep rest would come through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. When he would say, listen, all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the weariness, everything that, has, that sin has done to destroy the world, I'm taking that on myself on the cross, and then I'm gonna rise from the dead in power, and when I do, I am unleashing a new system into the world. Grace system is now in the world. The old religion of earning is done. The new system of grace is here. And then it comes with an invitation to us. Would you come? Would you come to me? Come to me all who are weary. Maybe this morning, this afternoon, you've never come in the first place. And maybe you've been around Jesus. You've been around church. You've been around church people, but you've ever, never actually come to Christ and said, here I am. I'm coming to receive the new wine. I'm coming to experience your grace and forgiveness and love. But also, maybe you're here and you've done that before, but you need to come back to the table. Say, my new wine is leaking in this old wineskin that I've been trying to use. Jesus, would you give me a new system? Let me come back to grace. Let me come back to reliance on your spirit. Let me come back to following Christ because the new wine I received, man, this thing is, this thing is leaking rapidly and I need that new wineskin, God. I need my life to match my convictions. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your kindness. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful that we have all that we need in you for everlasting joy. We're thankful for the new wine. We're grateful for the new wineskin. We're grateful for the new garment of Christ that you cover us with. We're grateful that you healed the man with the withered hand and you heal us today. We're grateful that you are Lord of the Sabbath that we can find our rest, a deep soul rest this afternoon in you and God. We don't wanna miss it. We don't want the counterfeits. We want the real thing this afternoon. We want your spirit, we want your nearness, we want your comfort, we want your grace, we want your rest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.